So Luke chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 25, and we're going to go to verse 37. I'm going to read it all. Uh, I think it's going to be on the screen for you. And then we'll pray, and then we'll start to unpack this, this parable, if you will. All right. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, what, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And this lawyer responded by saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And, he, and then Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Now do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself to Jesus, asked, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied with this story. He said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave it to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, which of these three do you think uh, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer responded, he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go. And do likewise. Let's pray. Father, we come to you reading the story, needing your help. We need your help to help us understand it. We need your help to maybe perhaps uh, chip away at things in our life that are preventing us from fully following what Jesus is asking us to do here. And God, I ask for your help today as I begin to unpack this passage that, uh, that you speak through me in a way that is clear, that is wise. And Father, we know uh, that you call us all to be good gospel neighbors. So teach us this morning what that means. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, I want to unpack kind of the context of the story before we actually get to the story first. So the text says that this lawyer, or some people will call him a religious scholar, um, is, is testing Jesus. He, he wants to kind of um, expose Jesus. Except that in this story, in this kind of exchange, Jesus kind of turns the table on him. Now, Jesus asks the guy, uh, for a summary of the law, and that's what he says in verse 27. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and then you love your neighbor as yourself. So let's talk about that first part. What, what does it mean 
to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, one pastor said it like this. He said, your religion is often seen in your solitude. And what, it, what that means, I think, is that when everything, stripped, when everything is stripped away, when you have nothing else that's going on, what, what does your mind go to? Maybe perhaps um, you live close by or you see these big cotton fields that are in bloom right now, and you go to one, you stand in the middle of a cotton field where you can't see anything else other than cotton, and you stand there for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. What, is, what does your mind go to? What does it naturally think about? Is it sports? Is it about the Bama football game yesterday or if Auburn's going to be LSU next week? Is it, is it that? Is it about, for me, I'm a baseball guy. I'm thinking about playoff baseball. Like, is it, is it that? Is it school? Is it work? How it's going? How it's not going? What needs, what needs to happen? What needs to uh, be better? Is it culture? Is it family? Is it other people? When you're standing in the middle of that field and you can't see anything else, what does your mind naturally go to? Is it God? And when you're able to identify what your natural thought process goes to, that's probably a pretty good picture of your religion. The reality is that most of us, if we're honest, God is not what we naturally think about. So really, the first test of the law says to love God so much, so much that he dominates your solitude. Love God so much that you're content in any circumstance because you've got everything you've already got in God. And that's just the first rule. The second rule, Jesus says, is to meet the needs of your neighbor with all the joy, power, speed, and force that you meet your own. That you you put your happiness in their happiness. And what Jesus is essentially doing here at the beginning of the story is saying that if you do all of that, if you obey that law perfectly, then you'll be saved. And what Jesus is saying sort of here is, is that the law is a way of life, not the way to life. And I kind of want you to see before we get into our parable here that Jesus, what Jesus is actually asking this lawyer or this theologian is really impossible to, to fully fulfill. The theologian kind of senses what's going on here, and he, he wants to justify himself, right? He recognizes that Jesus is kind of setting him up, and he wants to, to justify himself. So he asks then, Jesus, what is the minimum standards for salvation? Who is my neighbor? What, what is the minimum I have to do in order to get what you're talking about here? And that leads Jesus to this story. One pastor calls what Jesus is referring to here as gospel neighboring. And I love that phrase, so I'm going to steal it. It's not original to me. And so I think we tend to limit our gospel neighboring in three ways. In three ways. We limit it first by the who. We tend to limit our gospel neighboring by the who. We, we tend to limit our neighboring to the people that we know. We tend to say, you know, we'll give to or we'll help. Those that we know, because we're either familiar with them, or they're like us, or we know that they really have great needs. I mean, think about your friends. Think about the people you spend time with. I think that we are naturally segregated people. And I don't always mean racially. 
we tend to spend time with people that we like, we, who have our hobbies or, or, or who like the same team that we like or have the same interests that we have or maybe even have similar political leanings. And we gravitate towards those type of people, the people that are the same. But the story that Jesus shows us here shows us the importance of broadening our horizons. So we, we broaden our area of influence. Think about the story a little bit. It would be natural to assume in this story that Jesus here is talking to a theologian, a lawyer who's Jewish. And so it would be natural to assume here in this story that the person in need was a Jew. And the person who served was not a Jew. So he was not only just not a Jew, he was a hated Samaritan. A person whose very lifestyle and very religion was a direct threat to the other. And in this story, the Samaritan risked it all for the Jew. He crossed enormous barriers. And Jesus looks at you and me, he says, don't you dare limit your neighboring by the who. So we'll limit our neighboring often by the who, but we'll also limit our neighboring by the when. Sometimes we look at someone in need and we show no mercy because we believe they're getting what they deserved. Yeah, we'll help those who have, uh, who have need when calamity beyond their control happens. A fire in the house, cancer, a tornado, something. However, sometimes we'll look at somebody and say, you know what, I know that person and the choices that they have made, they have brought upon this, they have brought upon this bad situation by, um, upon themselves. And again, Jesus says, hold on, hold on. And again, he uses the historical context of the story to help kind of communicate this issue. The Samaritans and the Jews, they, they hated each other. And it would have been expected for the Samaritan to come upon this beaten Jew and look at him in the eye and say, you deserve this. That your people have been oppressing my people for years. You deserved what you just got. So Jesus is using this story and he's communicating to us that we are not to determine when we help. We help unconditionally. Think, think about it this way. Think about your own salvation. That at some point before you became a follower of Jesus, before you were saved, you were helpless. You were destined for a destruction totally brought upon by yourself, by your own sin. That you chose rebellion and you chose sin and you chose eternal punishment. Yet Christ looked down upon you and said, I will rescue you. Christ looked out upon you in your rebellion and says, I will bandage you up. I will care for you. That even though you have chosen to dishonor me with your lifestyle, I alone will offer you grace and mercy. So, how dare we determine the time and place we show gospel neighboring? So we'll limit it by the who, we'll limit it by the when, and sometimes we limit it by the how much. This might be your objection because you think you don't know what my bank account says today. 
And some people will be will object to being a good gospel neighbor because the cost is too high. And again, Jesus addresses this objection. And again, the context is important for us to consider. Jesus, in this story, specifically mentions where the robbery took place. In verse 30, on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. Now, this particular road was notorious. It was windy. It's a windy road, and it's full of a lot of places for people to hide out. And in fact, there's a, a little pass on the road. It's actually called the Pass of Blood. So it's likely the Jew that was beaten was beaten there, and he was left for dead. So two people come, come upon him, the Levite and the priest, and they come by. And if we're honest, they kind of do the smart thing. Why? Because the guy's still alive. The guy's still on the road, alive. He's been he's beaten, left for dead. But he's still alive by the time the Levite and the priest get there. And so they think perhaps the guys who did this to him are still around. And they may be waiting for the next victim. So in some ways, in an act of self-preservation, the Levite and the priest move to the other side of the road and they hurry along. Well, the Samaritan comes along. And again, the guy is still alive. So again, the threat is still very real. And he risks his own life to offer aid to his hated enemy. He says, I realize the guys who did this to you, they really might be around the corner. But I'm going to provide care for you. And he just didn't throw two to dare at him, say, I hope this gets you a long way. No, he said, he told the innkeeper, whatever the cost is, I'll pay it. I'm coming back and I'll pay whatever cost. It goes beyond what I've already given you. You know, Galatians 6 discusses this reality that the followers of, followers of Christ are to bear one another's burdens. And sometimes our objection to gospel neighboring is because we say we can't afford it without hurting us. And Jesus looks at you and me and says, exactly. Exactly. Truly bearing one another's burdens means Burdening ourselves. Truly being a neighbor means caring until it hurts. So Jesus is saying in this parable, if you truly want to be my disciple, if you truly want to be somebody who follows me and knows me, you lose the right to determine who you help, when you help, and only helping when it doesn't become a burden Before we move on, where are you? When you think about your own gospel neighboring, maybe gospel neighboring within this own community of church, of the church, or maybe gospel community within the area, how are you doing? Do you limit your neighboring? Do you limit, do you limit to the people that you like? Do you limit it to the people because you know they actually need it? Or you only limit, do you limit your neighboring to when it's convenient for you? How are you a neighbor to each other? And how are you a neighbor to those around you who may not know Christ? Let's be good gospel neighbors. And that's the mandate of the passage. But there's a, a pastor who recently passed away. His name is Tim Keller. He points out a couple of interesting thoughts on motivation. And I'm going to borrow 
some of his thoughts as we close out. You know, when it comes to helping the poor, we often experience different reasons to help. There's the morality element. We see the poor, we have pity, and we do what we can to help them. We'll vote for new policies. We have canned food drives and so on. And there's also a religious motivation. We help the poor because that's what good Christians do. But in fact, though, nearly every major religion addresses helping the poor. So the truth is, it's not Christian to help the poor. We're no different when we just do it for religious reasons. And Jesus addresses this. And again, think about the story. First, think about the religious motivation. The Levite and the priests were the very people that were charged with helping the poor. That was their job. Their job was to help people that were in great need and to lead them and to shepherd them and to guide them. Yet in an act of self-preservation, they chose not to. They moved to the other side of the road and moved on. Second, think about what would have happened if Jesus had changed the story a little bit. What if Jesus had changed some of the characters of the story some? You know, he's talking to this theologian, he's talking to this lawyer who is Jewish and would resonate and connect with the Jew. What if, what if he had switched in this parable? What if he switched the roles of the Jew and the Samaritan? What if it had been the Jew who had come across the beaten Samaritan? What if the hero of the story was the Jew? And basically, Jesus would have been communicating to the lawyer, to the, to the, to the religious uh, scholar. He would have said that all you have to do in order to have eternal life, to follow me, to be my disciple, that all you have to do is to overcome prejudice and hatred and help those in need. That's all he would have been saying. Jesus basically would have been just giving another, adding to a, a list of rules that one must do in order to follow him. If he had switched the roles of the Jew and the Samaritan in the story. Do you see it? In fact, if Jesus had done that, the theologian, I think, probably would have looked at Jesus and would have kind of laughed him off. He would have said, he would have called Jesus ridiculous. And he said, you know what, you don't really inspire me a lot. I don't want another rule to follow. But what did Jesus do? He put the person that the religious scholar would have connected with the most, he put the Jew in need of mercy. He made the Samaritan the one the religious scholar would just cringe thinking about. He made the Samaritan the hero. He put the Jew on the road, bleeding to death, in need of a miracle, in need of free grace. And your only hope is free grace from your hated enemy who doesn't owe you anything. It's a whole new dynamic, if you see it. It's not, a, it's not a new set of rules that we're supposed to follow in order to be a good Christian. It's a, it's a whole new approach to life. He's saying that what if you were the one in need of grace from someone who owed you nothing, who really just owed you rejection? And if you get that, if you begin to understand that, only then can you really become a radical neighbor, a gospel neighbor. Only then can you really become a, a dedicated, under, radical follower of Christ. You see it? Jesus is saying that you'll never be a radical neighbor until you yourself have been radically neighbored. 
You'll never understand what it means to be a gospel neighbor until you yourself have been on the road desperately needing free grace and then receiving it. You'll never be able to have the kind of ministry around you until you have received that radical neighbor grace. You see what Jesus is saying? He's giving you and me a picture of what he did for us. That we were the beaten man in need of free grace. That we were the beaten man destined for death. And Jesus, looking down upon mankind, sees you and me in our state. And he gets down off of his steed and he begins to bandage us up. Think about it. Jesus owed you nothing. Nothing. Before Christ came into your life, you were the hated enemy with him. Jesus could have said to you, you are getting what you deserve. And Jesus could have said, you know what? It's going to cost too much to help you. But at great cost, Jesus, at great cost, it costs him everything. Gets down off his steed and instead of pouring wine and oil on you, he poured his own blood on you. And he cleansed you of your own deep eternal wounds and he rescued you you received free grace the truth is jesus is the original good samaritan and until we get that until we fully understand that we can never be gospel neighbors this parable so often we read this parable and it just becomes a little a a set of rules that we just show mercy and we're nice to people who are in who are in need of it. But really, this parable, um, this parable is not about giving us another rule about how to be a better disciple, a better follower of Jesus. It's about revealing to you and me what grace is and how it then motivates us to be good neighbors. Church, let, let me state the obvious. I know and I don't know all the details, but I know you are in a, in a season of transition, right? You don't have a pastor. There's a lot of unknown that's happening within this, in this body that I don't even know about. The community, like there's a lot of things going on. And there, it could be really easy to, to just look within and think about what you don't have. But the reality is this church is still strategically placed in this area to reach people that no one else can reach it would be foolish for me to say that i can come in and do a great job here i live an hour and a half away i don't know anybody in andalusia area hardly anybody i know a few people but you this church you are strategically placed here for a reason there are hundreds of people in this area maybe thousands of people in this area that are on the path of blood between Jerusalem and Jericho and needing help. And it's not about a new outreach strategy or waiting for a new pastor to come in to tell you what to do. Or it's not about a new attraction or anything like that. It's not about waiting on someone else to give you direction. Being a gospel neighbor is recognizing that you were at one time also laying on that road, uh, on that pass of blood in desperate need. And Jesus came and he saved you. Being a gospel neighbor is like going to those people and saying, this is how you're rescued. 
It's not just about dragging them to church. It's about you going to where they are and saying, this is how you're rescued. It's about showing what grace is and how you receive it. It's about being motivated by what's been done for you above trying to impress God with your own religious piety. Again, quickly, to be a gospel neighbor, we must first see the need and be moved by it. We must first recognize that God has saved you. He has rescued you. And as Ephesians 2 reminds us, it was not anything that you did, so that you can't boast about it. But Ephesians 2 then says, He saves you for purpose. He has prepared works for you that you should walk in them. And so to be a good gospel neighbor is to be reminded daily of the fact that I was on the road and Jesus rescued me. But now he has repurposed me as a follower of Jesus. He has repurposed me as a church to go into this community where there are thousands of people on the road needing grace and showing them grace. Showing them what it means to follow the one who extends salvation to them. So we see the need and we are moved by it. Everybody saw the need in the story. The Levite, the priest, and the Samaritan, they all saw the need. The problem is the first two moved and avoided it. Saw it and avoided it. The Samaritan sees it and is compelled by it. So again, let me ask, where are you? Perhaps some in this room have recognized they've never really responded to the grace and salvation that Jesus has offered. And in a second, well, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing and Philip's going to be down here. If you want to talk to somebody about that, we invite you to do that this morning. Don't leave today without recognizing that the Savior of the universe has offered you mercy. He wants to bandage you up and repurpose you in this world. Perhaps some of you have been a follower of Jesus for a while. And you've begun to realize that maybe your reaction to those around you is more like the Levite and the priest. That you go move to the other side of the road and you move on. And maybe this story calls you to repentance. To be reminded of your own salvation that you did not earn. But God has given you ministry and opportunity that no one else in this world has. And you need to respond to that today. And you need to repent of your disobedience to him. Or maybe perhaps collectively as a church, you begin to realize, hey, there are some things that we need to do together as Bethany Baptist Church to, rec- to, to reach and serve our community. And instead, you've acted as a church collectively more like the Levite and the priests and said, we're going to move on to the other side. It is not convenient today for us to help and serve and, and, and be extended in different ways we've never been extended before. And maybe that perhaps today collectively, y'all need to begin to repent and say, how do we be? a gospel neighbor to our neighbors around us. So I'm going to pray. We're going to all have a time of invitation through song. And however the Lord moves and responds, I beg that you respond to him appropriately. God, every day we need to be reminded of the fact that you have saved us. That you did not limit yourself by the who or the when or the how much. But a great cost, a great cost, you have saved us. Father, we also know from your word that, uh, and, and our experience that you are powerful enough 
and big enough to do whatever you want. But yet, in your wisdom, you have saved us, but then you give us purpose to be gospel neighbors to our community. And there are, there are people in this room that need to respond to that, need to realize that they need to be better gospel neighbors. So, Father, forgive us. Forgive me when I neglect that. When I neglect the purpose, the calling for which you have called me. And may we all, all together respond by wanting to be good gospel neighbors to the, those around us who don't know you, who are perhaps also on the path of blood waiting for grace and mercy. Father, we love you. And we're thankful for the salvation for which you give us and the purpose for which you call